The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. Okay. Then one of those days, um, before I start tonight, I was... Is that a weird situation? You ever one of those weird situations where you think nobody's around? So Ashley Duplessis, she's a lawyer I work with. Badass lawyer. Badass crim lawyer. One of the best in Wayne County and beyond. Ashley once sent me like this playlist. She's a big Taylor Swift fan. And I listen to some of the songs. I'm a little embarrassed to say that some of Taylor Swift's stuff I liked. There's this one song called Exile. And it's like, okay, I've been here, gym at 6 a.m., whatever, and then we've been working all day. I'm kind of wiped out. Been a very productive day, but exhaustion's kicked in. So I'm thinking nobody's in the office, right? Building's clear. So I'm in the bathroom, and I'm singing Exile at the top of my lungs with my headphones in. I thought it was pretty good. Can imagine my surprise when there was like three teenagers waiting to use the urinal, get ready to go to their driving school class. Mm. Didn't work out well. Um, I don't have the ability that Taylor Swift has. Anyway, Ashley Duplessis, thank you for that playlist. Um, I'll listen to Exile on the Way Home, and I'll sing only in the car. All right, now that we got that out of the way, the live audience is rolling their eyes. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is the jail visit. On Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios, here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I'm Bill Amadeo from McMadison Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And tonight, we're going to talk about four topics. One, hey Joe Abera, hey Jason Whitney, what's up guys? Um, we're going to talk about talking the cops and how this works out. Matt Muxlow. I almost look like Taylor Swift. Yo, Matt. Come on, man. Check out the arms. Adam's son's got me grinding this shit out. There's no Taylor Swift here. God. I looked badass in my suit today. Now I got my dingy Dylan Panthers thing on with my failed football career. You didn't have to make that Taylor Swift comment. That was just hurtful. Aaron Abera, it's not that funny. But it is. Okay. We're going to talk about talking the cops. What we should and shouldn't say to them. We'll talk about the pros and cons. We'll go through the pros real quick. I'll get in that. Then we'll talk about the Chicago Bulls dynasty in 1998. A memory there. Michael Jordan's last championship team. Then we'll talk about Seinfeld's ending and the Sopranos ending. Obviously, I'm completely normal right now that we're talking about the Bulls, Seinfeld, and the Sopranos. We'll start with business. We'll turn to pleasure. Are you cool with that? All right. The live audience is down. Got my uh, football, and we got our softball from we won a tournament, the good old days, and bottle of water, and everything a mature man needs at 6.38 at night. Okay, so about talking to cops. Why do we do it? From an early age... We have this belief that if we tell the truth, it's going to set us free. I go back to my St. James days. I remember the teachers used to say, if you just confess, this is going to be okay. Here's the thing. When the police are looking for a confession, it's because they really don't have a good case. They need that confession to make the case. Now, you could outwork a confession, all right? Hire Dr. Brian Cutler. Do a Dolbert hearing. Go through all that happy horse shit. Reality is this, guys. When you talk, it's your get-into-jail-free card. I remember going back to 8th grade right now. I was accused of doing something I didn't do. I think they accused me of, like, writing something on the bathroom wall. And the people that told on me, they were actually doing a lot more shit. They were, like, dealing pot and stuff like that. But they were little, um, I can't, am I supposed to, am I at the curse? Okay. They were nobodies. So they ran to Miss McDevitt, the eighth grade teacher. Oh yeah, Billy did this and Billy did that. Here's what we learned from that. I was told if I would just confess, we'll be good to go. 
Well, if I confess why I got kicked out of school, I didn't do what they accused me of doing. But when somebody who's an authority, let's take Linda McDevitt, and that's kind of comical, but let's take Linda McDevitt for a minute. The eighth grade teacher is somebody that had respect, right? And they want you to confess. If you make the confession, they're going to use this against you. In that case, it wasn't anything detrimatic. Maybe get kicked out of school, maybe get held up, whatever. As we proceed in life, the police are the authority figures, supposedly. What they're looking to do is burn you with a confession. When they say we want to help you out, no they don't. What an officer is supposed to do, guys, is objectively gather the facts. Supposed to objectively gather the facts and present their complaint to the prosecutor. The prosecutor is then supposed to determine whether or not we have a charge. Then they present to the magistrate. Here's the deal. A lot of prosecutors are going to feel compelled to sign off on a warrant because they have a tight relationship with the police. One of the things that could put it over the top is if you make an admission. Talking to the police is not going to help you. Now, there are times, believe it or not, when I know a case is going to be bound for trial. And I know my clients got nothing to hide. And I will walk into the police station with a past polygraph. I'll lay that shit right out. I will coach my client up. We'll do this. 95% of the time, talking to the police is a horrible idea. The other 5%, if you have an attorney that's coaching you up, okay. There could be strategy behind that. I know certain prosecutors will say, well, they didn't talk to the cops, so I'm going to charge them. Sometimes it's better just to let that happen and deal with it then, as opposed to risking making a confession. Now, innocent people make confessions. Here's how. Get the words twisted. A is accused of raping B. And they say to A, did you rape B? And A says, no, but we had sex. Right there, a crooked cop is going to say, aha, he admitted to it. No, he admitted to sex. He didn't admit to rape. But this kid is getting confused now. And they'll say to this kid, well, are you sure she consented to it? Well, I think so. Oh, well, he thinks so. He's admitting that he did it. Now, that's bullshit, right? But... The kid without counsel talking to the police, they're not looking for the truth. Cops can use deception. Now, as a defense lawyer, it's our job to stick it up their f***ing ass when they do that. A cop can lie to try to get to the truth. Let's think about that. A cop can lie to try to get to the truth. Isn't the goal of both prosecution and defense to get to the truth? I don't think the goal is just to get convictions or dismissals. We want to get to the truth, right? So if a cop's going to lie to get to what they believe is the truth, are they objectively doing the investigation in the first place? Think about that. See it all the time. General rule, do not talk to the police. And if you're going to talk to the police, make sure you have your lawyer present. Your lawyer is there. We are the hired gun to protect you, to save your ass. You cannot go at this alone. And by the way, for you guys out there that think you're going to say something to the police that's going to get your case dismissed, you're not. There's nothing you can say. You deny it, they claim you're a liar. You admit it, they prosecute harder. There's no upside to it. There really isn't. This gets deeper when we get into trial prep. I will tell you... I did a study on this once. I think it was like 82% of the time when a criminal defendant takes a stand their own trial, they hurt their case. Think about that. Now, a lot of lawyers will tell you the jury wants to hear what the defendant has to say. If you have a castle doctrine situation or a self-defense situation going on, well then, you have to put your client on the stand. you got to prep them hard for that. Understand that. But in a normal situation that he said, she said with no evidence, the odds are the defendant is going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt themselves in court. They're going to hurt themselves talking to the police. I think we learned from today at a hearing that many people saw, the more people talk, the better the option is for a lawyer to twist up things. There was something that happened today. A lot of people saw it where somebody said something and it was taken 
in context and then evolved from there. The more we talk, the more dangerous the situation is. Nancy Eaton Gordon, who's a great lawyer in Lenaway, says, innocent until proven guilty. Their job is to prove you guilty, so don't help them. Cops are trained to get your words twisted. Deception is allowed. Even outright lies are allowed. And Nancy would know. She's a good criminal lawyer. You're right, Nance. I gotta tell you. There are lies allowed. But our job, I personally feel, and you do defense work, when a cop lies, you gotta go at him. You gotta go at him hard. I say to people this. When a prosecutor says, can my victim have a therapy dog? I say, sure. But you might want to keep that therapy dog for the cop when I'm f***ing done with him on cross-examination. Because he's going to be crying. Remember, cross-examination, man. That separates the men from the boys. The girls from the women. Nancy Gordon says the truth should be the goal, but unfortunately they're closing a case and close rates also play into it. Yeah, they are. It's really sad when an innocent person wants to take a plea because they're concerned at the risk of trial. Scott Grable always taught me this, though. Some cases are about guilt and innocence, and some cases are about risk assessment. Our job is to give our client the best possible defense. Now, that may mean kicking ass at trial. It may mean getting a plea where they don't do any time. It may mean a plea where you save them 20 years. Every case is different. This is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. However, shut the up when the cops want to talk it's not going to help okay now let's move on to some fun stuff about three topics that came to mind today the chicago bulls dynasty and how it ended the ending of seinfeld and the ending of the sopranos now i'm at different points in my life when certain things were happening here but today we were talking about New Jersey and about ending eras and how people change and people move forward. And what you thought was cool as a 20-year-old may be something you're just not impressed with at 40. How do we change so much over time? And when we look at old TV shows or old sporting events, do we do that for nostalgia? When you think of the Chicago Bulls winning their sixth title in 1998, is that a good memory or a bad memory? Let's talk about that. What I'm going to do is briefly tell these three stories about these two, these three eras ending. When the Bulls won their sixth title against the Utah Jazz, June 14th, 1998. There's a video I posted yesterday. There's a song called How's It Gonna Be from Third Eye Blind. It is a great song. But how's it going to be it's about closure. It's about something ending. And we always know that closure can be painful. Closure of good things can be painful. Closure of bad things can be painful. We see people leave high school and they're crying their eyes out because they loved high school so much. We see people leave a job to make more money and they're devastated. Because people are really scared of change. It comes down to and sometimes the memories are like the one thing we have to hold on to. So I remember this Bulls game very well. I had bet the Utah Jazz and I lost. And I thought the Jazz were going to win it that year. It was John Stockton. It was Carl Malone. It was two great teams going out of it. Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. And I'm a young kid in college, right? So there's three of us watching the game on Dudley Avenue in Ventnor Heights. My house in Ventnor Heights was the one that was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. And the house was kind of... We bought the house. My Aunt Mary, Mom, and I got the house when we left the ghetto of Atlantic City. And I'm a kid, right? So, 1998, I'm really a young kid. And... It was one of the first big sporting events we watched at the house. There were memories there. So we're watching this game, and there's three of us. It's my best friend, Henry the Head of Hill, Q. Um, Scott Zolber, may he rest in peace. 
were watching this game and Scotty had bet the Bulls. I had money in the Utah Jazz. I think I had like 250 on the game. And that was a lot of money for me in college. You know, I'm bartending casino. I'm a kid. It's a big bet. Lost. Scotty won. Q never bet. Q was probably the smartest of the three of us. He just watched. And we're sitting there with White House cheesesteaks. We're watching the game. And even though I lost, seeing Michael Jordan in Game 6 was just something special. If you can't appreciate Michael Jordan when the pressure was on, you just can't appreciate ball. And after the game was over, they played How's It Gonna Be, a short version of it. Like I said, I posted it yesterday. And we're just looking at each other, and we knew like this was this moment in time. We also kind of knew we weren't going to be together in the same way much anymore. Um, Scott was going to go off to Rutgers Law School. Q was going to go off to pharmacy school. Q knew he'd get married young. Scott was engaged. I was a single one. And law school was on the horizon. But law school was a few years away from me. And we just kind of knew like it was odd. It was one of the last times we would ever really be together. Your friends at the age of 20 may not be your closest friends at the age of 40, or they may always be emotionally connected to you. But when you look at 20 to 40, right, when you look at that time frame, the people that were in your inner circle at 20, if you really have that whole click 10 to 20 times the rest of your life, you're lucky. Things just change. And as MJ was going up, doing his reverse layups, and they're playing How's It Gonna Be, and you're seeing Scottie Pippen and Jordan just waving goodbye, it was the end. It was closure. It was kind of like a sign that, well, we're growing up. We're moving out. Scotty would die way too young. Q's back in Jersey. Great career, great family. Loved them, missed them both. I mean, Q and I probably talk once every couple weeks. Scott's gone, unfortunately. But we think back to that moment. There's something special about sports. It brings you together. There was something special about Jordan winning that last title. And there's something special about how that song just played perfectly. The video, and they're walking off into the sunset, and it's like, wow. Things are going to change. Things are going to change um, quickly. And if I told you that 1998 was, how is it, 23, 24 years ago? That's insane. You know, and I could watch that video all day. It's, it's kind of like those were the good old days. And how did it happen so quick? A a month before that was the ending of Seinfeld. I know the live audience hates Seinfeld, but let me tell you something. During Seinfeld, May 14th, 1998, it was Q, it was Scott, it was John Totoro. We're watching the end of Seinfeld at the Alki. The Alki was this little club, little gym in Atlantic City on uh, Mississippi Avenue. We were members. We had keys. There was this little tiny gym in the back and a punching bag and used to box back there. It was an amazing getaway, actually. Bad neighborhood, okay, back then, but it was an amazing getaway. John um, went to high school with him. He would die way too young. Scotty, I mentioned, would die way too young. But the four of us were sitting there watching Seinfeld at the Alki Club. And Seinfeld played a big role in our youth. You know, I know some people think it's overrated. But it was, in my opinion, the best comedy ever. And we didn't like the way it ended. Yeah, but... For hours, we just sat there and we talked and we went to shoot pool and the, there was a pool table at the Alki. 
and we talked about all the episodes of Seinfeld. What was your favorite? What happened here or there? And eight, nine years that Seinfeld was on, it was interesting. Because here's John Totoro, who in my opinion was the smartest in the room. Computer genius. Started hanging with a really bad crowd, developed a really bad drug habit. And this is one of the last times that John was like normal, I would say. Here's Scott Zolber, this amazing legal mind. He was going to go off and do bankruptcy. He knew that. He perfected at a young age. <clears throat> Miss Scotty a lot. Here's Q, this pharmacist to be. He could have been a doctor if he wanted, but he wanted to get married and have a family. That was Q's thing. And here's me, this kid from uh, Ducktown who's bartending the casino, going to Stockton full-time, has this idea to be a lawyer. You have, like, four different walks of life, right? You have the Margate kid, which was Scott, the Vetner kid, which was Q. John and I were Atlantic City kids, but we kind of had different upbringings. And I kind of felt like this show brought us together. It really did. And... That was the last time I ever actually saw John in, like, a social setting. And, you know, it's funny about 1998. You're a kid in 1998. 20 years old or whatever, and you're watching life just go by, and part of you knows that, you know, things are changing. And those two things happening back-to-back, Seinfeld and... The Bulls Dynasty a month apart. It's a special year. But it was a year that was a foundation for so many things to come. You knew at that point, in some ways, you were just growing up. And these two things, this amazing sitcom, this tremendous basketball game, this dynasty, which was the Chicago Bulls, you were smart enough to appreciate it, but you were also kind of saddened that whether we like it or not... We got to go our own different directions here. And all of us went very different directions. You know, and it's odd when you look back on things like that and people you care about are dead. John was a nice guy. He was okay. I wouldn't say John was a close friend at all. But we enjoyed each other's company. We were two of the only white kids in Atlantic City. He lived on uh, Texas Avenue. I lived on Willow Avenue, which is right by Mississippi Avenue. So we both had some stories to tell from there. We handled things very differently. Um, I was the failed athlete. John was more of the computer guy. He got in with a really, what I would consider a rough crowd. When I say rough crowd, it was like John was never, he was never viewed as cool. You know. Uh, the hot girl never wanted John. He just wasn't in the clicks. We were cool, but he was different. Then he got connected with this group. And with that came a lot of drug using and stuff. Good kid. But we just separated. Scotty, which I won't talk about his passing because it just hits too close to home, just died way too young. Lived a lot longer than John. But when you think back to memories like this, I mean, 1998, is it that long ago? But here's, like, these kids that we grew up with that are gone. You know, um, it's just weird. In some ways, when I think back to Scott Zolber, amazing memories there. But he's also kind of pissed off. Like, why isn't Scott here right now? You can never take away the ending of Seinfeld and the ending of the Bulls Dynasty. We always will have that. I remember going to the Eagles opener in uh, 2018. Scott Grable got me tickets, and it was the Eagles and Falcons right after the Eagles won, and Scotty had died um, several months before that. And all I kept thinking of, Scott should be here right now. It was really weird. And I thought back to that Bulls championship. An Eagles opening day, there was something special about that because we finally won the Super Bowl. And, you know, people say to me, you're not the Eagles fan you used to be. 
you have like this affinity for the Lions now. And I, I do want to see the Lions win. You know, I've kind of been here consistently since 2004. There was an interval there, but I think the Eagles, it was something special growing up as a big Birds fan. And you support the team, uh, South Jersey, Philadelphia Town. And I'm really happy they won a Super Bowl. But when Scott Zolber passed away, it was almost like part of my passion for the Eagles passed away with it. Because part of Eagles football to me was calling Scott every Sunday. 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 8 o'clock or Monday night or Thursday, whenever the hell they were playing. Scotty Z and I used to go over to games. But how busy either one of us were. And Scott found success a lot quicker than me. Let me be real about that. He was smarter than me, man. He was great at what he did. There were times he wanted me to come back to Jersey, work for his firms, but me and Jersey just were not a fit, you know. But we, the Eagles were kind of the thing that bonded us together. And we would often talk about that Chicago Bulls championship team in 98. It was like glue, you know. Here we are. What's Michigan, the length, the 800 miles, whatever. Got this 800-mile distance. Two very different worlds. But... The Eagles brought us together. So when Scotty passed, Scott passes away. Eagles won the Super Bowl before he passed away. Your whole life, one of the jokes were, would I be alive to see the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Okay, we were. Then he's gone. I like the Eagles. I hope. I'm glad they're in the playoffs. But the passion to be an Eagles fan is not what it used to be, mainly because of Scott Zolber's death. And I will say, as much as I appreciate sports in general, I just don't think basketball is as good today as it was in 1998. LeBron James is arguably a better player than Michael Jordan. Okay, arguably. I know people get pissed off about that, but he's an amazing player. But there was something special about Jordan, and I wasn't the huge Jordan fan when he was playing that many other people were. But you also wonder, was part of the reason that you have so much admiration and fondness for that time period was because of the people that were around you. It wasn't just MJ beating Carl Malone and John Stockton. It wasn't just how's it going to be being played on NBC. It was being with Q and Zolber for one of the last times. You know, and that's something you can't take away. They kind of are like the good old days, even though it's not that old. But... You know, you're in your early 40s and just sitting back like, holy shit, half a life's gone. And we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We just don't know. The death of Scott Zolber at 44 makes you wonder about a lot of things. It does. I remember, um, yeah, that was a special time period. But we transition. June 10th, 2007. The ending of The Sopranos. (laughs) So, here's the deal with this one. I'm in law school. My mom would actually die four days later. Mom died real young. Mom was fighting ovarian cancer. And one of the things we used to do on Sundays was um, I would call Aunt Mary and Mom at my apartment in Lansing when I was at Cooley, and we would talk about what's going to happen on Sopranos today. You know, and then talk about the show afterwards. And I'm like a little kid calling Aunt Mary and Mom. And at my apartment that night, there was Brian Largy, who was a great guy. He's going to be a congressman in New Jersey at some point. Good lawyer in New Jersey. Good friend. Brian was like a big brother in law school. Retired state trooper. He looked out for me. I would say he took me under his wing a lot. Love Brian Largy. Special guy. He's been there for me during deaths of loved ones. And I always appreciate Brian. But Brian was there. Brian Carmichael. Who I have no idea what he's doing now. Mark Frisbee. Who's a damn good public defender in Montana. Facebook friend. And we're watching The Sopranos. We're like, holy shit, this is the end. 
Like, how is this show ending? Because it had so much good stuff to go. And it was weird because I know Mom's near death. And what The Sopranos was for me at that point was like an escape. So here's what I was doing. I was busting my ass in law school, right? I had a part-time job as a journalist. And I'm flying back to Jersey as much as I can because I don't know, it's always touch and go. And I had to make medical decisions for Mom. Tough time, man. Tough time. And, uh... So for The Sopranos, when it came on on Sunday night, it was like you escaped everything for a little bit. You know, the pressure of law school, the stress that your mom's going to pass away, um, how is Aunt Mary going to cope with this, make sure you have enough money in the bank to throw back to them. That's a story for another time, but it was taken care of. And here's The Sopranos. And I'm talking to Aunt Mary and Mom, and the guys come over. And we're watching The Sopranos. And um, I remember the ending comes on. Now, if you know the ending, it's a bullshit ending, man. Rick Goldie and I, is a good friend of mine, we talked about this at length over dinner. Here's the ending. We don't know if Tony gets killed. We don't know if anybody else gets killed. But he's in the diner. It fades to black. And I swear to God... We're freaking the f*** out. We're saying to ourselves, what happened? We're calling Comcast. Hey, what's going on? My TV just went out. We're flipping other channels. And it's like, wait, the other channels are working. My aunt's blowing up my cell phone. She's like, Billy, what the f*** happened? She goes, the Sopranos went dead. We'll right near the end. And mom's pissed off. She's under the phone. This is bullshit. You know? She's close to death, but my Italian Gloria there was pissed the f*** off that she didn't get to see the end of the sopranos and we learned like it was the end of the sopranos they stuck it up our ass with that ending i will never forgive david chase for that ending and by the way the many saints in newark go fuck yourself spoiler alert the fact that junior had dicky maldesanti killed and the fact that dicky Killed his mistress slash mother. What the f***? Stepmom. That was bullshit. So all these years, Junior killed Dickie? That was a slap in the face, man. I knew I shouldn't have watched that fucking movie. I knew it. It almost killed my memories of Sopranos. I'm so pissed about the many saints in Newark. Ah, oh, don't get me started. Anyway. So where was I? <laughs> talking about. Before I got so rudely interrupted with the many saints in Newark, The Sopranos was f***ing amazing, but the ending was unforgivable. But I will say something, that ending still has us talking about it, um, 15 years later, so. It was a good memory. It was a good memory of the people I was around that pissed me off how the show ended. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. We're going to talk about the Ventner Colt, a.k.a. the Colt of Ventner. <sighs> so... <laughs> we start this been a hell of a day a couple dismissals i am absolutely exhausted i have actually intakes to do tonight and i got a brief and i know there was some requests to talk about something and you know we're always talking about how people are more interested in my life story than the legal issues of the day and ventner um mm. Vetner has some interesting stories to tell. So let's start with this. For those of you that know me or follow me, I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Grew up in Ducktown. Grew up on Willow Avenue in Ducktown, which was adjacent to Pitney Village, which was a pretty, pretty chaotic housing project. Grew up there in the 80s and the 90s. And Vetner was kind of 
it was kind of viewed as the promised land, which is really bizarre as we get into it. But I went to St. James, which was in Ventnor for Catholic school. We'll talk about that a little bit. I played baseball in Ventnor. We lied about my address to do that, and what a group of assholes there. High school create some interesting things about Ventnor. College did. And we'll talk about Dudley Avenue, which was the first house I bought. But let's start at the beginning. My family wanted me to go to school in the suburbs. They were worried about sending me to Chelsea um, Junior High. I guess they missed the point that I would have to walk home by Chelsea Junior High, but um, they wanted to send me to St. James. And St. James was Catholic school. And they really thought that sending me to St. James, despite the busing issues, would be be good for everybody. You know, he's going to be an altar boy, and he's going to go to this great school. I mean, and what I can say about St. James is, I don't think, for such a small school to have such an abundance of assholes was absolutely amazing. You had a lot of people there who really thought they were special. And, hey, Gary Cloud, how are you? And it was kind of weird, because if I listened to the people at St. James, I'm sure I'd be back in South Jersey right now, not doing much with my life. There was kind of like a caste system. <sighs> and St. James, I got really sick. I think it was about fourth grade that really bad stomach issues started to hit. I almost died. And the brilliant minds at St. James said that I was faking it. I didn't want to go to school. Now, at this time, I was top of my class. Things were going good. I never really caught up um, academically at St. James because I was in the hospital so much. So I did fine with my grades, but it wasn't at the top where I was before I got sick. I remember the priest and the nuns. This whole thing that he's faking it. He's faking it. Yes. I was faking puking three times a day with a stomach virus. That was all bullshit. You know, and I had dyslexia. We didn't know that back then. So for me to study, it was always really difficult. Um, I would study all hours of the night. Always had this insane work ethic, right? But I would see words backwards. It wouldn't actually be till law school that things changed on that. So the educators at St. James used to like, they're, they were like belittle you. You know, it'd be like, um, he's dumb, he's faking, he doesn't want to be here. All the sickness, it's in his mind. The dyslexia was something you could just overcome. And they would shove Catholic religion down your throat. My God. I remember in 8th grade, Linda McDevitt, she was our 8th grade teacher. What a miserable individual. We had religion class. And one of the topics that came up in religion class was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the guy who created the Lutheran religion. And he was a Catholic first. Now, people don't always know that. So what Martin Luther did was he thought the Catholics were basically violating their own rules. So he, on the Pope's door, he, like, posted all the things the church was doing wrong. Pretty fucking ballsy. Remember Miss McDevitt? She was, like, talking in her class. And she was, like, a bully. She was like, and Martin Luther did this, and Martin Luther did that. So I went home, and my neighbor, Mo Petroni, great man, I borrowed his encyclopedia, and I looked up Martin Luther. Now, this is pre-internet, okay? This is when kids actually had to look in books to study. So I looked up all the stuff about Martin Luther, and at religion class the next day, I raised my hand. Always did raise my hand. And I was like, listen, I did some studying on Martin Luther, and it turns out that he was actually standing against what the Catholics were doing wrong. I was told I was a bad Catholic. I was told that 
how dare you question the Catholic faith? This is where me and religion start to really go wrong. And let me be clear, guys. If religion works for you, cool. But when you force religion down someone's throat, it's not a good thing. And I didn't I didn't just have religion forced down my throat. I had was an altar boy who served mass nearly every day. My aunt, who was my godmother, it was always important to Aunt Mare that I was a good Catholic. Okay. Want to make Aunt Mare happy. I mean, Aunt Mare was like my mother and my father all rolled up in the one. I mean, she was an amazing woman. Mom was my big sister. Aunt Mare was my mother figure. And Aunt Mare wanted me to be a strong Catholic. So when people like Linda McDevitt and Brendan Sullivan talk sh I just kind of ate it. But then I would have my own independent thoughts. And what you learned at St. James is having independent thoughts was not allowed. I defended Martin Luther. And Linda McDevitt was pissed the f off. How dare you? This is the same woman who, at the end of the year, we used to have these sub sales, right? We would sell subs to go on class trips. And my best friend then, still my best friend, Henry DeHedeville. So I sold my subs, and I didn't want to go on the class trip. I had enough of these ass. It was like the end of eighth grade. And I said to Miss McDevitt, can my sub money go to Henry? And she gave the sub money to who her two favorite students were. And she told me she'll decide where that money goes. I won't decide even though I sold the subs. The one was like a tyrant. Just never liked Linda McDevitt. Remember I told her I wanted to be a lawyer and she basically told me good luck with that. How are you doing today, Linda? What are you doing in your life? Just curious. Anyway. And by the way, if there's any big Linda McDevitt fans out there and you want to delete me for telling the truth, cool. Go for it. The woman told me I couldn't be a lawyer. The woman berated me for defending Martin Luther in a god religion class. You could not have independent thought at St. James. St. James was this weird little cult. And if you weren't in that clique, you were deemed a nobody. And I got to tell you. And pay careful attention to this. The people that were in that clique, the inner circle, I want you to really look at the scoreboard today. Didn't quite go according to the script. I defended Martin Luther that day, and I was threatened that if I kept it up, I may be fired as an altar boy. You know, looking back today, that'd be like threatening somebody if you misbehave, you're not going to be able to get that root canal. I dealt with a lot of shit at St. James, and it came in two forms. It came in the school, and it came in the church. Father Sullivan was like a role model. It was this big Irish priest... And he used to always make little jokes about me being Italian. He used to call me Amadego instead of Amadeo. And I always wanted to win Father Sullivan's approval. Now, years later, Father Sullivan would get caught up in a child molestation scandal. And I defended him. And I lost big time jobs defending him. And I believed you have to defend your childhood priest. And as I defended him, I took a lot of for it this is the same guy i would take to dinner when i was like coming home from term break and he would make little comments like well even if you don't pass the bar you still did more than anybody thought who the f were these people what linda mcdevitt and brendan sullivan were going to be the purveyors of what's going to happen in the future as an altar boy it was weird because i had three or three hats at saint james i was a student I was an altar boy, and I was a rectory sitter. Student speaks for itself. Altar boy used to have to serve mass all the time, and as a rectory sitter, for $2.25 an hour, which was decent money back then, believe it or not, for a kid, um, I used to answer the phones. I used to work all day on Saturday and do stuff like that. I always had this big work ethic. And I used to save that money I made at the rectory 
to then buy baseball cards that were hope go up in value. And then eventually I would sell those cards to help buy our first home. That was my thought process with everything. And usually when I was rectory sitting, I mean, it was, Father Ed was a good guy, but there was a lot of ass priests there. And Sullivan was just a miserable human being. I could say that today objectively. He was just not a good guy. I don't regret defending him. I don't regret losing my first big-time job in New Jersey defending him openly. But I, I do regret placing such a high level of importance on him. At St. James, we learned that the priest was somebody who... They were just hierarchy. They were it. People often ask me two questions. One, did Father Sullivan ever molest you? And the answer is no to that. And... I will explain why I feel the answers now. Um, my family, I'm told about my grandfather, Matt Neary, to about my aunt, Mary Lee Neary, my mom, Gloria Neary, may they all rest in peace. If I was molested, I'm pretty sure my family would have burned down the rectory. Took a lot of shit at St. James when I was a sick kid. And you were an outsider coming from Atlantic City anyway. But I will tell you this. There was this craziness in my family. This need to fight. And if... I was the golden boy of the ghetto. Case closed. If my family thought somebody molested me, they would have murdered the person that did it. They would be run to the cops. They wouldn't be doing an interview with a victim advocate. They would have taken matters in their own fucking hands. So I was ever molested. Now the second thing people ask me is, are you upset that Father Sullivan never molested you? No, that's that's just bizarre. You know, what I don't get about the church back then is apparently there was an accusation from 1983 that he did something. So they move him to another church. Why would somebody who may have molested somebody may molest the child, be moved to another place where they were watching over children. If there's one issue I have with the Catholic Church, that would be it. And watching football at the rectory on Saturdays, that was kind of like... First of all, if Notre Dame was on, you had to watch Notre Dame. And I think that's why I can't stand the Irish today, the Notre Dame fighting Irish. That was so shoved down your throat. They were God's team. So... I'd be watching an SEC game on ESPN, and we were too poor to have ESPN at home at that time, so watching a game at the rectory was actually a treat, and Sullivan would walk down, he would change the channel. I'd be in the middle of the game, that'd be it. You know, there were other things there, too. I remember once at the rectory, I told the story before, but it's worth repeating. There was this one kid who was Sully's favorite. Just put it like that. And I was working one day, and when you were working at the rectory, you had television privileges. So, this kid was kind of a bully, but he was Sully's favorite. So one day, he used to come in and change the channel all the time. And I guess about 8th grade, I started you know, like getting sick of shit. And he grabbed the remote control from me, and he just sits there, and he starts changing the channel. I even ask you, hey, Bill, are you watching this? And I had it. I grabbed the remote, and I said, motherfucker, I'm watching that. Go fuck yourself. And I changed the channel back. He went running to Father Sullivan like a little Father Sullivan, Billy took the remote from me. And Sullivan comes out. Here's like this 300-pound man. And I'm like 13, right? And he's screaming at me. He's a guest in this house. You're just an employee. He takes priority over you. And here's this little ass so pleased that Father Sullivan is screaming at me, defending him over who has a right to watch a television. We're 13-year-old kids, man. And I know, in 8th grade, I supposedly lost a fight to some asshole who I know tunes into these channels. I've heard that story, that I've lost the fight. And this kid who allegedly beat me up in a fight... He's gotten a lot of mileage out of this. I mean, for years, he probably got laid with it. I get, he could tell people today, 
I beat up that badass criminal lawyer. And if you saw this guy, I mean, he was always a douchebag in St. James, but life hasn't been kind to him. He's got some bullshit job. I mean, he's one of the, he's not an attractive guy at all. To the guy who allegedly beat my ass in 8th grade and has bragged about it for all these years, it's not exactly the way it went down. As you can tell, it's a lot of vent up frustration about St. James. Just, God, what a group of asses. Like, they decided who was accepted and who was not. Let's be clear, we were poor. We were from Atlantic City. We were Italian. We did not check any of the criteria. What was accepted was I could serve 7 and 8 a.m. Mass. Sullivan used to make me serve Sunday night 5.30 Mass. After Sunday night 5.30 Mass, what would happen is I would then have to take a bus home. And it was like a danger zone in Ducktown. He didn't care about that. Um, he basically... It was like a form of punishment. And my aunt, who I love dearly, would be like, well, if Sullivan gave you 5.30 mass on Sunday night, you got to do it. Remember, I asked him one time, could I not do 5.30 mass on Sundays because it was the football playoffs? And he told me, well, I'm going to give it to you every week during football because you got to decide what you care more about, football or God. Kind of an interesting perspective on things, huh? St. James, in my opinion, was one segment of this Fetner cult. Another segment was baseball. My God. Baseball in Ventner. What the f***? What a group of little assholes. <laughs> so, my Aunt Rose Riggio, she had a house in Ventner. We used to lie and use her address... So we could play, so I could play baseball in Ventnor. At that time, there was no option to play baseball in Atlantic City, and we were too poor to live in Ventnor. So we lied about the address. And parents used to line up and request for investigations to be done about a nine year old playing farm league in Ventnor. I never quite understood the anger towards it. It's just always different. I get it. But. The parents in charge of the baseball programs in Ventnor, I gotta think it's like a cult, you know? I mean, most of these people never left. So they grew up in Ventnor, they lived in Ventnor. They were Ventnor. And they used to brag about how we are from Ventnor. It's like this whole thing. And the baseball program was usually run by a bunch of assholes who weren't good athletes themselves. And now they had a chance to you know, control these children by deciding who's getting picked, who's not getting picked. I was always good enough to make the teams. Um, and this frustrated a lot of parents. Like, I would be a child playing baseball and hearing a group of parents talking about me. They would say stuff like, his mom is an unwed mother. He's white trash from the ghetto. He's lying about his address. We need to get these type of people out of here. I was fucking nine years old. And you're hearing this shit. What was really cool, though, is one of those pieces of shit who never wanted me with his daughter actually called me for help recently when his daughter's husband got busted in a COVID money scam because you need an elite criminal lawyer. See, to me... Criminal law was always what I was meant to do. And there's a great scene in Rounders when Mike is talking to his law school professor. And his law school professor always tells him how he was brilliant. He was meant to be a rabbi, but it just wasn't for him. And Mike asks his professor, if you could do it again, would you make a different choice? And his professor goes, what choice? We really... We don't choose life. Life chooses us. And I think part of me, when I got into law, I always wanted to be this big-time civil litigator, you know? I want to stick it up those parents in Batner. I mean, they were miserable to me. 
they were just cruel people. And if you did not fit into the clique, you talk shit about you. I mean, imagine a group of six parents belittling a nine-year-old. My mom wasn't at the game because she was working at the casino to try to make sure we could live. Aunt Mary was sick. Grandpa was dying. And these pieces of shit are trashing me how they want to do an investigation. And here I am. I'm terrified. I can't lose baseball. You know, people held baseball over me for a long time. It's a lot. There was another ass from St. James who used to talk shit to me and I wanted to just kill him. But I didn't. I took a lot of shit. I didn't want to get kicked off the baseball team in high school. I could tell you today, guys, whether it's financially or professionally or anything, there's not a fucking thing anybody could hold over me. And I have such anger towards Vetner because they knew what was important to me. Father Sullivan was a fucking asshole. You got to serve mass 530 to walk home into the ghetto at night. And if you get hurt, so be it. And then come back and do mass 7 o'clock in the morning. And you're sick with your stomach and then go to school. And if I get sick, I'm faking it. The parents of the Vetner baseball crew... They were like small town nobodies who thought they had like this little bit of power. They used to trash children. And Krim Lowell, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that Krim Lowell was where I was supposed to fucking be. But I all used to feel, if I went into Krim Lowell, if I was a success in Krim Lowell, they would say, well, he couldn't make as a civil lawyer. For many years, I let these people shape what I thought success was. I look at them today. What was their deal? You know, somewhere, guys, and I always tell this to kids when they ask me for advice. Somewhere, there were these kids in a sandbox. And at that point, when the kids were playing in the sandbox, nobody cared whose family had money. Nobody cared what clothes they were wearing. They were just enjoying themselves. They were two, three children having fun. And somewhere along the line, these cliques formed. And the priest and the teachers played a role in those cliques. They decided who was in crowd, who was not in crowd, who was going to be successful, who wasn't. And they determined the pathway for many of us. It takes a strong mind to overcome learned f***ing behavior. I'll tell you. Don't ever let somebody tell you what you can or cannot do. I'm living proof. If I listened to those pieces of I would not be doing what I'm doing today. There's some anger. You know, and there's... The anger comes about mom, Aunt Mare... Especially mom. Mom listened to asshole tell her who she was, who she wasn't. Mom died a sad death at 50 years old, ovarian cancer. I always feel bad because I knew I was stronger than mom, you know? Ventner people hurt my mother. She always felt that she wasn't good enough to be accepted by these pieces of shit in Ventner, in Ventner Heights. Ventnor, New Jersey, go fuck yourself. Okay. Well, now that my therapy session is over for tonight, uh, we're gonna go. Um, Bill Amadeo, I approve this message. I'll see you guys soon. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the 
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.